Well, okay, this that'll work. Um, it's very nice to be back with you all. I uh, appreciate very much the opportunity to be here. It's very nice to be back with you all. As some of you know, maybe most of you, I have been working lately on completing the editing and publication work for Sanchez's last book, which is going to be called The Rescue, The Virus of Biker Das. And this was a book that he wanted very much to be published, and for reasons which are beyond me, uh, even though I was a very large part of those reasons, uh, it has taken forever to do it. And uh, all I can say is, I, it's, it does seem to me that the timing, as with everything else, is up to him. Anyway, I want to begin today by reading a brief section, actually the opening of chapter four of that book. Chapter is called In the Fire of the Mind. And um, this is the introductory part of that chapter, which will sort of set the theme, I hope, for the entire retreat. He says, Sanchi says, God Almighty has showered a great amount of grace on us in that he has chosen us for doing his devotion. He has brought us in the company of the saints and the master, and the masters have graciously connected us with Shabad Nam, which is protecting us. Often I have said that when an ignorant son does something very bad, as a result of which he is put in jail, even though his father does not like that act, and even though he does not appreciate what his son has done, still, because of his attachment to his son, what does he do? He hires a competent lawyer and does every possible thing to save him from jail. He does that only because of his attachment to his son. He does not have any other reason. Even though he does not like what the son has done, still, because of his attachment, he is ready to do anything which could possibly release his son or bring him out of his trouble. In the same way, our soul, who is the child of Almighty God, who is the same essence as Almighty God, when she came into this world, she was very pure and innocent, but she took the company of the mind and started following and obeying the mind. That is why she started doing so many bad karmas that she became attached to those karmas. And because of that, she had to come back into this world again and again. The chains of the karmas are such that they can never end. But thanks to the grace of the Almighty Lord, he comes in the form of the Master to release us because our soul is of the same essence as he is. He has love for us. He is attached to us. 
And that is why he does every possible thing to release us from that unending chain of karma. He gives us nam, and graciously he cuts down the chains. Whenever the masters have come, they have come to release the souls from the chains of karma. Masters have always come into this world. Kabir Sahib came, Swamiji Maharaj came, Guru Nanak came, Jesus Christ came, our Sadguru, Master Kripal, Master Sawan, all the great masters have come. God Almighty has always come into this world in the form of rishis and munis and the great masters. He comes into this world only to release the souls from this bondage, from this chain of karma. Whenever they come into this world, they do not look at any particular community or religion. They come for all the souls, because all the souls belong to him, and he is attached to and loves all the souls. That is why whenever they come into this world, they do not look at any particular community or the outer label <coughs> or outer appearance of the souls. Swamiji Maharaj says, God Almighty has taken the form of Radha Swami and he has awakened the souls in this world. Those souls who accept him and who are awakened by him they are made to realize the real form of God Almighty and they become the awakened ones. Regarding his master, Guru Arjun Dev lovingly said, Oh, my dear friends, the name of the Lord is Ramdas. He says, God Almighty has come in the form of Ramdas to liberate the souls. Why does God Almighty always come into this world as a human being? Because we are so made that we love that which is like ourselves. And because we are of the same essence as he is, he always comes in the form of a human being. Since we have not seen the angels and we cannot understand the language of the animals and the birds, that is why, because we are human beings, he also comes in a human form. Those who limit the teachings of the masters only to a particular community or religion do not have any idea what the teachings of the masters are. When the master comes into this world, he has a very big heart, and his teachings are for the whole of the universe. Once Muslim priests came to argue with Kabir Sahib, and they said, you say God is within, every, is within everyone, but it isn't true. God lives only in the mosque. So Kabir Sahib replied, what about the people in the other countries? Who is supporting them? Who is taking care of them? The purpose of the Master coming into this world is to teach us humility, to connect us with the Shabbat Nam, and to make us do the meditation of the Shabbat Nam because we people have become stones after worshiping stones. Our hearts have become stones, and that is why the masters have come to teach us humility. 
it is because of very powerful grace and the mercy of God Almighty that we think of going in the company of the Master. It is the result of the very large amount of grace of the Almighty Lord on us. I want to um, Sanji touches in that passage on a couple of themes that have very much been on my mind lately and which I have been running across over and over again in the uh, teachings of the Masters, partly because I have been working on this book. But um, one of the themes is, of course, universalism, okay? That is that God loves everybody and will eventually bring everybody back to him. And uh, no one will be left out. We could say no soul left behind if we want to. They will, uh, every single person in the universe, including those elements that we think of as negative, will come back to him because they all come from him. This is something the Masters emphasize very much. At the other end of it is like the, the way in which the Master relates to us, to each individual. Because we are the same essence as he is, he loves us. And despite whatever we may or may not have done, he will come and get us. He is our friend. In the... Um, in the discourse, the farewell discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of John, the, um, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He calls him in Greek the parakletos, sometimes anglicized as paraclete. And the word paraclete is, in the old translation was comforter, but more modern translations usually translate it as advocate. And it does mean both, but its primary meaning is that of a defense attorney. And the, the idea is that the Spirit of God, the God imminent, the God who is present within each one of us, is like our defense attorney. He is our advocate. He is constantly concerned with guiding us in such a way that we will use whatever comes to our account to come back to him. And that's his purpose. And that is what, you know, in the path is called the master power, working overhead, Master Kripal used to say. Um, the master power working overhead will extend all possible grace, help, and protection. It was a phrase he used to use a lot. And... That's exactly the way it works. It's like we are, you know, everybody is put in situations. Situations can be very bad. It can be awful. And yet, if we are moving in that direction, if we have in our hearts has arisen the desire to meet God, then the God power within us will be able to use everything that comes to our account for our best spiritual interests, which is what Master Kripal wrote me. 
one time. I would like, before I go any further, to read um, two sections from Master Kripal's masterpiece of a talk called The Essence of Religion. This talk was given at the uh, the Third World Religions Conference in New Delhi in 1965. And I was present when this talk was given. Judith and I were there. Uh, we were sitting up front, close to the front row, and we had an interpreter, because Master spoke in Hindi. But when uh, the interpreter started to interpret, um, the guy sitting in front of us really didn't like it, and he complained, and the interpreter got very intimidated and stopped. And Judith went, uh, went on her knees in front of that guy and said, look, we've come 10,000 miles to hear this. He's our master. Um, we really want to hear what he's saying. Won't you please let the translator translate? And the guy really just wouldn't look at her. He was totally embarrassed and he looked away and the interpreter did not interpret anymore so we we had to wait till that afternoon to uh, actually read what master had said but this is what he said and not the whole talk but a couple of sections from it which emphasize the same points that sanchi was making in the, the part we just read <coughs> master kapal says all the religions agree that life, light, and love are the three phases of the supreme source of all that exists. These essential attributes of the divinity that is one, though designated differently by the prophets and peoples of the world, are also wrought in the very pattern of every sentient being. It is in this vast ocean of love, light, and life that we live, have our very being, and move about. And yet, strange as it may seem, like the proverbial fish in water, we do not know this truth and much less practice it in our daily life. And hence the endless fear, helplessness, and misery that we see around us in the world in spite of all our laudable efforts and sincere strivings to get rid of them. Love is the only touchstone wherewith we can assume our understanding, we can measure our understanding of the twin principles of life and light in us and how far we have traveled on the path of self-knowledge and God-knowledge. God is love. The soul in man is a spark of that love, and love, again, is the link between God and man on the one hand, and man and God's creation on the other. It is therefore said, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Similarly, Guru Gobind Singh says, Verily I say unto thee, that he whose heart is bubbling over with love, he alone shall find God. Love, in a nutshell, is the fulfillment of the law of life and light. 
all the prophets, all the religions, and all the scriptures hang on two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Questioned as to our attitude toward our enemies, Christ said, love thine enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. With the yardstick of love, the very essence of God's character with us, let us probe our hearts. Is our life an efflorescence of God's love? Are we ready to serve one another with love? Do we keep our hearts open to the healthy influences coming from outside? Are we patient and tolerant toward those who differ from us? Are our minds coextensive with the creation of God and ready to embrace the totality of his being? Do we bleed inwardly at the sight of the downtrodden and the depressed? Do we pray for the sick and suffering humanity? If we do not do any of these things, we are yet far removed from God and from religion. No matter how loud we may be in our talk, and pious in our platitudes, and pompous in our proclamations. With all our inner craving for peace, we have failed and failed hopelessly to serve the cause of God's peace on earth. Ends and means are interlocked and cannot be separated from each other. We cannot have peace so long as we try to achieve it with warlike means and with the weapons of destruction and extinction. With the germs of hatred in our hearts, racial and color bars rankling within us, thoughts of political domination and economic exploitation surging in our bloodstream, we are working for wrecking the social structure we have, which we have so strenuously built, and not for peace, unless it be peace of the grave but certainly not for a living peace born of mutual love and respect, trust and concord that may go to ameliorate mankind and transform this earth into a paradise for which we so fervently pray and preach from pulpits and platforms, and yet as we proceed, it recedes away into the distant horizon. Where then lies the remedy? Is the disease past all cure? No, it is not so. Life and light of God are still there to help and guide us in the wilderness. We see this wilderness around us because we are bewildered in the heart of our hearts and do not see things in their proper perspective. This vast outer world is nothing but a reflex of our own little world within us. 
the seeds of discord and disharmony in the soil of our mind bear fruit in and around us and do so in abundance. We are what we think and see the world with the smoke-colored glasses that we choose to put on. It is proof positive of one thing only, that we have so far not known the life and light of God and much less realized God in man. We are off-center in the game of life. We are playing it at the circumference only and never have a deep, excuse me, never have a dip in the deepest waters of life at the center. This is why we constantly find ourselves caught in the vortex of the swirling waters on the surface. The life at the circumference of our being is, in fact, not different from the life at the center of our being. The two are, in fact, not unidentical. Yet when one is divorced from the other, they look dissimilar. Hence the strange paradox. The physical life, though a manifestation of God, is full of toil and turmoil, storm and stress, dissipation and disruption. In our enthusiasm and zest for outer life on the plane of the senses, we have strayed too far away from our center. Nay, we have altogether lost sight of it. And worse still, have cut the very moorings of our bark, and no wonder then we find ourselves tossing helplessly on the sea of life. Rudderless and without a compass to guide our course, we are unwittingly a prey to chance winds and waters and cannot see the shoals, the sandbanks, and the submerged rocks with which our way is strewn. In this frightful plight, we are drifting along the onrushing current of life, where we know not. This world, after all, is not and cannot be so bad as we take it to be. It is a manifestation of the life principle of the Creator and is being sustained by His light. His love is at the bottom of all this. The world with its various religions is made for us, and we are to benefit from them. One cannot learn swimming on dry land. All that we have to do is to correctly learn and understand the basic live truths as are embodied in our scriptures and practice them carefully under the guidance of some theocentric saint. These scriptures came into being by God-inspired prophets, and as such, some God-intoxicated person or a God-man can give us a proper interpretation of them, initiate us into their right import by reconciling the seeming discrepancies in thought, and finally help us inwardly on the God path. Without such a practical guidance, both without and within, we are trapped in the magic spell of forms and minds and cannot possibly reach at the esoteric truths lying under a mass of verbiage of the bygone ages and now solidified into fossils with the lapse of time into institutionalized forms, 
formulae and formularies of the ruling class. And I'm going to skip Master Talks now about mysticism being the core of religion and the various ways in which that has manifested. And he explains that if you ask most clergy of most religions, so he explains, for example, uh, God, according to all scriptures, is described as the father of lights, Nuran ala nur, Svayam jyoti sarup, all of which are nothing but synonymous terms. But ask any religious authority as to the connotation of these words, and he would say that these are only figurative terms without any inner significance. Why? Because he has not actually experienced in person his light, uncreate and immortal, self-effulgent and shadowless, which Moses, Zoroaster, Buddha, Christ, Muhammad, Nanak, Kabir, and others of their kind actually witnessed and realized and taught those who came in contact with them to do likewise. Without taking any more of your time, I would like to emphasize one thing, that all religions are profoundly good, truly worthy of our love and respect. The object of this conference, remember it was a World Religions Conference, sponsored by the World Fellowship of Religions, of which Master at that time was president. The object of this conference is not to found any new religion, as we have already enough of them, nor to evaluate the extant religions we have with us. Again, we should shed the idea of drawing up one world religion, for all religions, like so many states, are, in spite of their variegated forms and colors, but flowers in the garden of God and smell sweet. The most pressing need of the time, therefore, is to study our religious scriptures thoughtfully and to reclaim our lost heritage. Everyone has in him, says a saint, a pearl of priceless value, but as he does not know how to unearth it, he is going about with a beggar's bowl. It is a practical subject, and even to call it a religion of soul is a misnomer. The soul has no religion whatsoever. We may, if you like, call it the science of soul, for it is truly a science, more scientific than all the known sciences of the world, capable of yielding valuable and verifiable results, quite precise and definite. By contacting the light and life principles, the primordial manifestations of God within the laboratory of the human body, which all the scriptures declare to be a veritable temple of God, we can virtually draw upon the bread and water of life, rise into cosmic awareness, and gain immortality. This is the be-all and end-all of all religions, and embedded as we all are in the one divinity, we ought to represent the noble truth of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It is the living word of the living God and has a great potential in it. It has been rightly said, 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And this word of God is an unwritten law and an unspoken language. He who by the power of the word finds himself can never again lose anything in the world. He who once grasps the human in himself understands all mankind. It is that knowledge by knowing which everything else becomes known. This is an immutable law of the unchangeable permanence and is not designed by any human head. It is the Shruti of the Vedas, the Nad or Udgit of the Upanishads, the Sarosha of the Zendavesta, the Holy Spirit of the Gospels, the Lost Word of the Masons, the Kalma of the Prophet Muhammad, the Saut of the Sufis, the Shabad or Nam of the Six Scriptures, the music of the spheres and of all harmonies of Plato and Pythagoras, and the voice of the silence of the theosophists. It can be contacted, grasped, and communed with by every sincere seeker after truth, for the good not only of himself but of the entire humanity, for it acts as a sure safety valve against all dangers with which mankind is threatened in this atomic age. The only prerequisite for acquiring the spiritual treasure in one's own soul is self-knowledge. This is why sages and seers in all times and in all climes have in unmistakable terms laid emphasis on self-analysis. Their clarion call to humanity has always been, Man, know thyself. True knowledge is undoubtedly an action of the soul and is perfect without the senses. This, then, is the acme of all investigations carried out by man since the first flicker of self-awakening dawned in him. This is one truth I learned in my life, both in theory and practice, from my master, Baba Sawan Singh Ji Maharaj, and have today placed it before you, as I have already been doing before the peoples in the West and East during my extensive tours all over, and have on experience found it of ready acceptance everywhere as a current coin, for it is the sole panacea for all the ills of the world, as well as ills of the flesh to which man is a natural heir through the working of the inexorable law of action and reaction. Ye shall reap as ye shall sow. All of our religions are, after all, an expression of the inner urge felt by man from time to time to find a way out of the discord without into the halcyon calm of the soul within. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. But we are so constituted by nature that we feel restless until we find a rest in the causeless cause. If we live up to our scriptures and realize the light and life of God within us, then surely as day follows the night, love would reign supreme in the universe 
and we will see nothing but the unseen hand of God working everywhere. We must then sit together as members of the one great family of man so that we may understand each other. We are above everything else one from the level of God as our father, from the level of man as his children, and from the level of worshipers of the same truth or power of God called by so many names. In this august assembly of the spiritually awakened, we can learn the great truth of oneness of life vibrating in the universe. If we do this, then surely this world with so many forms and colors will appear a veritable handiwork of God, and we shall verily perceive the same life impulse enlivening all of us. As his own dear children embedded in him, like so many roses in his rosebed, let us join together in sweet remembrance of God and pray to him for the well-being of the world in this hour of imminent danger of annihilation that stares us in the face. May God, in his infinite mercy, save us all, whether we deserve it or not. Before I sit down, I heartily welcome you, my brothers and sisters, and thank you warmly for your kindness and sincerity in furthering the idea that God is love which is, of course, implicit in the commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, who is one, with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Um, you know, the commandment is not to fear the Lord our God, but to love him. And we can love someone who loves us. Master Kapal used to say, it is he who first loved us, our love is only reciprocal. And when that awakening, when we are able to experience, to feel that love working in our soul, which is a very real thing, and once we feel it, it cannot be denied except at great cost. Once we feel that, then, um, you know, the rest of it all becomes possible. And that, Master Kripal has said that, you know, the greatest day in a man's life is when the desire to meet God arises in his heart. Once that desire arises, it cannot be stamped out unless it is solved. So, once that happens, when a person in their heart of hearts realizes that what they want is to find God, then that cannot be stamped out, although the person may forget it. It may not become, be part of his or her life for long periods of time. But the fact is that once the desire arises, it in itself is the sign that they are ready for more and that God will respond to that, although actually the desire itself is part of the grace of God too. When we talk, when the Master talks about love being the essence of the universe, Rabia Aladawiya, the great Sufi 
woman master referred to it as the core of the universe. Um, of course, the question arises, well, what about all the bad stuff? You know, what about all the evil? And there sure is a lot of it. And I will, before the retreat is over, I will read some things uh, from Baba Sawansing and other masters um, about how the nature of evil and good come together and what exactly evil is that we perceive and how it affects us, um, how come we are afflicted subjected to so much pain and suffering even if you know we recognize that God loves us you know we could think why does he treat us this way then, if he loves us but as the masters point out uh, it all depends on point of view and perspective and whether we are looking from below the cycle of birth and death or from within the cycle of birth and death which is governed by karma which is the way in which um, our everything that we do causes everything else, and whether we are looking at it from above that, once we have left that, at which point we see very clearly that uh, the root cause of the universe is love. Both the masters of Saint Mat and the masters of the Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism school that in many ways is so close to Sant'Mat, uh, have described this in terms of the breaking apart of God in the course of creation. That is, as God created, uh, he separated himself into many parts. According to the Kabbalists, there were ten, the ten sephirot. And um, in the Anurag Sagar, the ocean of love of Kabir, very similar concept is expressed. And uh, the sephirot or the power, the sephirot or the power of God called judgment or din or givura, um, once it was separated from the whole, sort of ran away with, um, with itself and became the ruling power of the lower worlds. In Sant'Mat, this particular power is called Kal, or time. And there it is expressed a little differently. The idea that time does not function apart from eternity except in an oppressive way. And the two ideas, uh, Kal is also called Dharamrai, which means the Lord of Judgment. And uh, Din or Gevura in the Kabbalah system is also called, is the Lord of Judgment. And um, when that is in operation, and in the lower worlds, those aspects of God are separate, uh, so that we are governed by the way in which they interact with each other. But as we rise up, as we go above the cycle of births and deaths, beyond the three worlds, into the purely spiritual realms where the love of God reigns supreme, at that point the judgment aspect is merged back into the love aspect and is governed by it. And uh, it becomes clear to us 
that love is the factor, the potent factor, as Master says. Now, how that works in our life is simply this. If we live our life according to the principles of love, then we are, as Jesus said, uh, being like our Father. Okay? Because the loving God, the God of love, El Elyon, the highest God, is motivated by love, not by power or judgment or punishment or reward. And he treats us, from his point of view, he treats us like that. The rewards and punishments come in at a lower level. So if we live and act according to um, the way the God of love acts and lives and suggests to us what we should do, then we are imitating him and we are working, uh, proceeding toward him and uh, going out of the cycle. Whereas if we live according to the idea of the negative power, if we do not love each other, but instead hold each other accountable for all our faults, judge each other for all of the ways in which we are less than perfect, uh, get angry at each other for um, being basically like ourselves, if we do all that, then we are imitating, of course, the Lord of Judgment, and we are setting ourselves up to go round and round and round in the cycle of births and deaths. So we'll get into this more um, this afternoon and also tomorrow morning, uh, different things the Masters have said about this. But for today, I just want to conclude um, with a section from Master Kripal's talk called Love is the Way in the book The Coming Spiritual Revolution which was uh, given uh, at the celebration of his birthday on January 25th, 1964. And I was present at this talk also. Uh, it was a masterpiece of a talk. I was not able to appreciate it fully because I had a terrific migraine headache at the time, something that I have a problem with from time to time. And uh, I did not really have anything, any effective medication. And I remember uh, in desperation going out of the meeting house to a drugstore across the street, buying some Emperor compound, taking three of them, and hoping against hope that it would work, going back in, listening to some more of the talk, observing the master, how he oozed love. And I, you know, oozed is not perhaps the best word, exuded. Uh, he was so loving on this day. He was sitting there on a, on a platform talking very quietly, very conversationally, saying this remarkable stuff. And this is part of what he was saying on that day. Godhood is the birthright of every human being. Fortunately, we have that birthright. It is the grace of God. And the grace of God has further descended in that we have some desire, some yearning for God. It is to achieve him, to find him, that we have cared to join any school of thought or religion. It is possible through love alone to become God, I would say. The lover and the beloved both become one. Christ said, I and my Father are one. And St. Paul said, it is I 
Not now I, but it is Christ that lives in me. This is what is meant by the word gurumuk. Master is God in man, and a lover of the master becomes a gurumuk, living. There was one lady there of a very low caste. She heard that Lord Rama was coming into exile into the wilderness, and what did she do? She thought, Rama will be coming and he may be barefooted so that the thorns might prick his feet. So she simply cleared the way of all thorns. And then she thought in the heart of her heart, when he comes, what shall I offer him? In the wilderness there is no food to eat, but there are berries everywhere. She began to pluck berries and taste them. Those that were sweet she put in her pocket. So she kept all those tasted berries with her. Each of the yogis who was living there thought that perhaps he was the greatest of the yogis and that Lord Rama would be coming to his cottage. Mind that this I-hood, I know better, I am better than all these others, is the last weakness that leaves a man, even the so-called masters. And the reason that the master explained this to me um, in 1965, when um, I was there at the World Religions Conference, a yogi lost his temper in the, uh, during a tea party that followed the conference. And he was a, a yogi of great power. His name was Surya Dev. And I had noticed him, a little scary, but uh, very powerful. And he just erupted in this e enormous loss of temper. And everyone started backing away. I don't know what it was that made him so angry. Everyone started backing away, and the um, the master came over. He observed this man. He came over, and he walked right up to him, and he put his arm around him very lovingly. He took his hand, and he put it on his face like this, and he just brought it down over his face, down his chest, down his stomach, to his waist, Mary stopped. And as he did that, as his hand came down, the yogi's energy and his anger and all of that just sort of... And it was, it was like he was drained out. And I was obviously enormously impressed um, by this. And I next day I asked the master about it. And one of the things... I mean, I was impressed by the master's power, but I also, of course was curious as to how a person, how somebody who obviously was an advanced yogi, why they could fail in that way. And the master said what he says here. He said that this I-hood is the last thing that leaves. And you see, the point is that if you're a yogi or a person who's, who studies spiritual power and these kinds of things, and you... Um, have not yet developed, you know, conquered your ego, you have not yet risen above your ego, then all that power that you develop goes into the service of the ego so that you become, you do become scared. And uh, this is what happened to that guy. I believe uh, later pictures of him that I have seen show him uh, as very loving and very humble with the master. Uh, so I'm not making... Uh, cosmic judgments on him but it's just at that particular time anyway so where did Rama go 
he did not go to the cottages of those yogis. He, went, he met the lady who had collected the berries. And what did he do? She offered him those berries that were tasted, and he ate them. Love knows no law. Love is above all. And of course, this is, uh, is um, I mean, obviously it's unsanitary, but beyond that, in Hindu religious law, uh, you do, people of lower caste do not have anything to do with food for people of higher caste. Lord Rama was not a Brahmin, but he was a Kshatriya, uh, which is the second highest of the Hindu caste. And Lady Shivri, her name is, was a Bhilni, and the Bhils were um, an outlaw, like a forest caste. They were untouchables, in uh, would be called today, and outside the pale. So she had no caste whatsoever. And um, so for her to taste the food and then give it to Lord Rama is because she was uneducated and simple and motivated only by love that she was dared to do that in the first place. But Lord Rama ate the berries. Now in the dramatization of this, there is in India every year in October, right about now, very close to now, is what they call the Ramlila, which is the uh, play of Rama, in which the story of the Ramayana is acted out. And this scene is in it. The Master once sent a whole bunch of us to see this um, Ramlila, and then when he got back, he gave us a half an hour discourse on various meanings that were in the play. And it's a musical. It's like an opera. And I loved it. I absolutely loved watching it. And this scene is there. You know, you see... The Bhilni comes up with the berries, and Lord Rama accepts them. And Lord Rama's brother, Lakshmi, Lakshman, who is um, also there, uh, is horrified. I mean, he's an Orthodox Hindu, and he sees this low-caste woman coming up with these half-eaten berries. And he sees Lord Rama take them, and he turns his back. He can't stand it. He turns his back. And Lord Rama is happily taking the berries and smiling lovingly at the Bhilni and so forth. It's a very powerful scene to watch. And when we got back, this was one of the things that Master commented on. Love knows no law. Love is above all. The yogis living there have been doing penances for hundreds of years. This was, of course, the Silver Age of the uh, Treta Yug, when um, people lived a lot longer than they do now. Then he went to them, and they came up to him and asked, Will you kindly grace our cottage? There was a pond of water where they lived that was full of small insects. There was no other source of water, and they asked Lord Rama if he would just clean the pond of all dirt and insects by his grace by putting his feet into the water. It was held that if you were a holy person and you had water that was polluted, contaminated, whatever, and you put your feet in it, that it would clear it up. This was the idea. And he said, no, I think you're the greatest of the yogis. Why don't you put in your feet? For they must be better able to clear up the pond. They did, and the water remained the same. Then they forced him, kindly put your feet into the water, and all insects will go. He said, all right, it's up to you. He also put his feet into the pond, but the insects were still there. Lord Rama had to demonstrate the greatness of love. True love does not know any show, mind that. 
He said, I think it would be best if you called that Bilni and let her put her feet into the water. And the yogis, of course, did not like her, partly because she was low caste, partly because she was a woman living there in the forest, imitating them from their point of view. Uh, so they didn't like this, but they did. They did what Lord Rama said. She came and put her feet into the water, and the pond was clear. These are instances to show that love is a great miracle. God is love. Through love only you become one with God. You can become one with him whom you love. As you think, so you become. But we have not seen God. How can we love? We can only love one whom we have seen who is at the same level at which we are working. The Mohammedan scriptures tell us each man must have some beloved. What sort of beloved? Not one that leaves you but is ever with you. One who does not leave you in this life and in the life hereafter. And who can he be? It is the God in him. Christ gave an example to show this. So long as the branches are embedded in the fruit-growing tree, they give fruit. But when they are cut off, they cannot give fruit. Then he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. So long as you remain embedded in me, you will bear forth ample fruit. Do you see? This is what is meant by love. Hafiz, a great saint, tells us, O oh God, people call me Hafiz, but I am no longer Hafiz. I am he who lives in me. So for human beings, God becomes human and has love for his beings. In that man who has become one with God, God becomes man. God in man and man in God. This is the word I have given in this message, too. And who was he? My master. I saw him. He was man and God. To love master is to love God, the God in him, not the son of man. Mind that there is no sadhana, no spiritual practice greater than love. All outer performances, rites and rituals, and the saying of prayers are only meant for love. If you have developed love, everything is there. There is no higher law than love. And there is no goal beyond love. Because love is God and God is love. In this way, God and love are identical for the one who has divine love has reached God. He is one with him. This is why I said here that what the masters taught in their lives is a religion above all religions. They gave out that very love. No amount of intellect can fathom God. No amount of austerity can enable you to attain God. Only when one loves him and loses oneself in him can one find him. It is only by the feet of love that you can lose yourself when the two become one. And there are no other means, there is no other way back to God except through love. Okay, and we will continue this theme as time goes by. <clears throat>